the hatred of the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But, but, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds me from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Would you indulge me in one more short prayer? Father, as I open up your word, as I get to speak to your congregation, may my words be useful to you and to, the, to your people. May your spirit use this uh, mightily in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I spent 17 years as a youth director, as a youth pastor, 17 years of welcoming a new incoming class of sixth graders, 17 years of saying goodbye to an outgoing class of seniors, that change between those incoming sixth graders and the outgoing seniors. I knew it was a long time then, but now as a parent, I realize how quickly it goes. And those of you who've had the privilege of raising children through that stage, or those stages of life, know that it passes all too quickly, and yet some days not fast enough. I bring this up because this passage reminds me of the sixth graders. Because those who hate the Father hate me. Those who love, love. And I just think it's funny that John himself, when he writes, is caught up in this world of dualisms, this world of binary, black and white descriptions of many things. And so whenever I hear somebody say they hate something, whether it's fair or not, I automatically think of a sixth grader. Because I, that's what I would tell parents that have these wonderful little kids that they, they raise and are learning skills and are getting verbal and learning to read and learning wonderful things. And then they become a sixth grader. And we all know that there's something about them that goes and gets put on the shelf for just a few years, but you get them back in a new and improved form. It's almost like all that development from, from the cradle to 10 or 11 years old resets and starts a new, goes back to square one and starts going again, building on that framework. But I can always tell people when they, not, you know you have a middle schooler when they love everything and hate everything. 
There's no in-between. Such it is with John. He loves and he hates. If you look at through the, the Gospel of John, he writes about everything as either the, light, the world of the light or the world of the darkness. It's a world of love. It's a world of hate. It's the world of either this age contrasted by the age to come. It's the world of above versus the world below. It's the world of the, the spirit versus the world of the flesh. It's, it's the life of the ascension rather than the, the descension. It's the world of life versus death. Now, is that because I think he's immature and writing like a sixth grader? No, it's just what it makes me think. But I also recognize that when we come to reading the scriptures, we've probably heard this read. We may have heard it preached. We probably heard some version of it in conversations. The idea that if you are in Christ, you are with, you are misunderstood. If you are in Christ, the world doesn't like you. The world hates you. Why? Because this passage tells us that is so. And so sometimes we get caught up in this binary, this either or, two options. So when we're reading this, we sometimes enter into the text as if we're reading something addressed directly to us, written to us in today's day and age. But always when we read the scriptures, when we approach the sacred writings, we have to ask ourselves, who was the audience? Who was the writer? What was the context to whom it was written? How was it transferred? We, we should struggle against just opening up this text and going, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me and thinking this is just a letter between you and Jesus. Because there might be some other layers to it. There might be some reasons that John wrote in very stark, contrasting dualisms. In part because the spirit of the Greek age and the Greek world was a dualistic world. The world of the above and below, the world of light and dark, meshed very well, and it was understandable to those who had the Greek philosophy, the Greek frame of reference, the Greek worldview. In the same way, every culture has its own sense of how the world works. That's why if you come from a, an Eastern European worldview, it's gonna be very different than a Western European worldview. If you come from an Eastern Asian worldview, you're going to see life and process relationships a little bit more differently. So when we come to the text, we have to remember and try to suspend our reading as if this was just one-to-one. -one. And we, that's where we start asking interpretive questions. Things like when I was reading through this, I wrote down my key terms that I thought, these are the important things I have to pay attention in this passage so that I understand it well. Key terms, hate. What is meant by hate? How is he using it? How is it used uh, in the rest of the letter, in the writings of this day and age? Another term is the world. Who is the world? Who is the world that is hating? Persecute. They, pers they will persecute you just as they persecuted me. What does it mean that Jesus was persecuted? What does it mean that we will also be persecuted for the name of Jesus? Another one is sin. What is meant by sin? That they would not have sin if he had not preached truth to them. What, is all these, what do all these things mean? And we may not answer every single one of these questions, but I'm just trying to help at least show you what I do. When I'm going to a text and I'm trying to read the Bible and understand what it means for me today, 
It means taking a slow down and a step back and start asking the key questions. What are the key words? What are the key ideas? What are the key questions that are at play here? Some of those questions might be, how do we see this union of Christ that we saw in the very beginning of this chapter play out in this part of the chapter? You see, right before it, now I know it's been seven days since we talked about union with Christ, and it's been seven days since we talked about um, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and you are in me as you are in the Father. And it's been two weeks since we talked about the analogy that we are the vine, that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. But in the text, it's all one flowing sermon, one flowing talk, one flowing set of ideas. So one question I'd like to ask, how do we see that our union with Christ, this interplay, this connection between Jesus is in the Father, we are in Jesus, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in us, how do we see that playing out here? One of the things that I see there is that when the people who are going to be persecuting Jesus, the people who've rejected Jesus, the people who are going to turn their back on Jesus aren't turning their back on him because they don't like what he's doing. They don't like what he's saying. It's because they don't know the Father. Hmm. They don't know the Father. Well, then that's when we have to step back and go, who is this that's being talked about? Who is the world that doesn't know the Father? Interestingly enough, if you take a look down here at verse 25, it was to fulfill the word that is written in their law that they hated me without a cause. Who can we infer that is the world that Jesus is speaking about? It's the Jewish leaders. It's the religious teachers. It's the ones who should have been celebrating that the Messiah has come, but in turn looked at him and saw him threatening their power, threatening their world, threatening their understanding of who God is. You see, if we just come up to this text, we're going to start reading the world as in those outside of the church. Is that fair? Isn't that what it would be very easy to do, isn't it? The world will hate you as it has hated me. The world, those that don't know Jesus, won't understand you, and so they're not going to like you. Why? Because you know Jesus. You're now the teacher's pet, so to speak, in the cosmos. You're now the, the beloved child who gets all the, the extra portion of dessert. But is that the reason? No. And Jesus said it's because they don't know the Father. How can they know me? That's where this union starts coming in. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and the disciples are in the Son, and then the Spirit is what unites them all together. This is the union that we have with the triune God. But it is our same union that brings us life that also brings us persecution. Why? Because we are not greater than our Master. We are not greater than our Lord. We are not greater than our Father and His, his redeeming Son. And if we are yoked to Him, if we are united to Him, if we are grafted, if we are branches that have been grafted into Jesus' vine, we get to enjoy and flourish in all the goodness and blessings of the kingdom, but we also get all the heat waves and wind and thrashings from that which is around, but not of the vine. So when we put it that way, that can make sense. But I do think it is interesting that Jesus was not talking about Rome as the world. 
for it is written in their law. Their law. It's written in the law. In the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament. It's written in, the, it's written in their sacred writings that they hated me without a cause. So it's kind of interesting that as we start stepping back. Now, so here's the, another just kind of a, a little aside here. I have a couple of sides planned for you today. So here's number one. When we're reading the text like this, we're getting the story, the account of Jesus interacting with his disciples. But we're getting it decades later, written by John, an eyewitness. But he's not there writing a news report. He's not writing a biography. He's writing a gospel, presenting Jesus as the King, Lord, in his fashion to his people in his context. But Jesus, in, in the text, is talking to his disciples about the response and reaction of the other Jewish people and leaders. They should have known me, but they don't know my father, so they don't know me. Therefore, their law, what is written in their law, is true. I will be persecuted unjustly. But now John is writing that to his people, and they're supposed to take and understand that the way that Jesus was treated by his surrounding the world is going to be similar how you and I are going to be treated in our the world, which was Rome. You see, there was persecutions. There were persecutions of Christians at this point. Again, if you know anything about first century Roman culture, Rome created the most amazing, broad, unified empire that the world had seen at that point. It's, as a matter of fact, the kind of globalization of first and second century Rome, the nearest thing that we see akin to that is the, is the 20th and 21st century, in my estimation, historically. Now, some of your historian buffs, correct me if I'm wrong, but we go through a lot of dark ages and middle ages in between there where people don't travel abroad, where they don't travel far, where it's not safe to travel, where there's not um, a, a free trade, trade routes and, and tourism routes going across cultures and nations. But under Rome, there was. The whole Mediterranean area was under one big hand of peace. But it was peace with what? Peace with a fist. Peace with a sword. Peace that was demonstrated by you do not, if you just stay in line with Rome, your life will be easy and will be blessed. But if you cross it, you will be crushed and the response will be harder than you can imagine, and it will be overkill, and it will be overreaction. Therefore, Rome had no problem with other religions. This is your religion? Fine, do your thing. As long as you do what? Honor Caesar. The interesting thing was that it was the peoples that kind of saw that the, the idea that Rome itself was a divine entity, therefore the Roman leader was a divine son. And so they kind of just went with it. And once a year, they would have this one little offering where you were supposed to hail the name of Caesar, burn a little burnt offering to him, and then be done, and then you can worship your gods all you want. As long as you kept the peace and kept the unity of saying, Caesar is Lord. The Christians, by the way, weren't even Christians. They were this bizarre sect of Judaism. And Judaism was already an approved religion within Roman, Roman citizenry and Roman culture. But it wasn't until these Christians 
refused that day. The Caesar is Lord day, but replaced it with Jesus is Lord. A new son of the king, a new son of the gods was born. A new son of the gods was born to bring a new kingdom. Can you start to see why Rome might start paying a little more attention to this group? Now, here's the difference. Here's the difference between them and us today. Is they were small outposts, small bands of house churches, of small gatherings. Frankly, this in a city would probably be a mega church. Look around you. This is a mega church of Christians in most towns. Oh, look, you know that big church over in Kennet. Oh, the Apostle Paul's been hanging out there a while. We would be the esteemed, the preeminent, the, the ones that would be looked at. We would have letters written to us. I don't know how you would take Ephesians, Galatians, and turn into Kenetians. I don't know how to do that. You see, what we don't have is denominations, infrastructure, history, years. So here's this little outpost of people who are starting to get noticed because they don't bow to Caesar. And they're starting to ruffle some feathers, talking about another kingdom from another God-born son who brings victory. That's when it began to be a threat. That's when they began to be persecuted for the name of Jesus, for identifying as a disciple, a follower, a believer of Jesus. The name of Jesus started to get them marked. Not their attitudes, not their actions, not their content. It's just the fact that they were a rival threat to Rome, and Rome likes to overreact. Take a small problem, extinguish it before it gets big. Easy, no conscience, no worries. Except, what do we know about the church? It's fanned by the Spirit. It's filled by grace. The gates of hell cannot stand against what God is doing. And the more it was persecuted, the more it fanned the flames, the more it spread, and the more it grew. Until ultimately, the empire itself got turned on its head. The only way, the only real way for the empire to subdue Christianity was to absorb it and take it on so it could form it from the top down. That's a sermon for another day. So why does the world persecute Jesus, and by extension, his church? They don't know the Father. They don't know the Father, so they rejected Jesus. They don't know much about him. But he's this person who's claiming to be king. So that's why they persecute the follower, their followers. It's not about their performance. Or behavior culturally. So again, who is, who is the world in this text? In the text, it's the fellow Jews who rejected Jesus. To the audience of the text, it's Rome who did not like them being a threat to Roman culture and Roman peace and Roman structure and Roman society. As N.T. Wright said, and you can find it at the top of your bulletin, I put this quote in there, and the world in question was not the pagan world. It was the world in which Jesus was born and lived. It was the world of Abraham's children, people who were studying the law of Moses. It was the world which thought itself to be God's people. It was the world that looked at Jesus and said, no, thank you. Isn't that interesting? People who actually thought they were gods. A little aside note there, aside number two. Does that send a little bit of a shiver? that maybe people who believe they are God's people could be the ones standing against Jesus himself? 
I mean, when we look back at the Reformation, our Reformation teaching would tell us that there were some leaders in the church at that time that were leading the church in such a way that they were leading a no-gospel church in the name of Jesus. They were leading a gospelless, powerless, spiritless church in the name of Jesus. And so Luther and Calvin and a whole bunch of others at different stages over a whole thing had a bit of a rebellion, and it was fostered by, again, that's a, that's a history lesson. That's a Sunday school for another time. But it is interesting for us to know that possibly even today, it's able, we are able to stand against God in the name of Jesus. Hmm. So what is the degree of transfer for us today when we read this text? So that we don't just open up John 15 and start thinking and processing the news, the nightly news, and the talking heads that tell us how the world works. All those talking heads on TV that tell us how we should orient ourselves towards our neighbor. And then we start reading Jesus through their lens. What is the degree of transfer? How do we read this today? Our reading gets a little bit more distant than John's dualistic rendering here. You see, our world isn't a simplistic, small, early group of house churches that are usurping Rome from the bottom up. Why? Because we have 2,000 years of church history. We have 2,000... We have 1,500 years of presence. We have decades and centuries of global domination to atone for. We are big enough, we are influential enough, and we have enough prior history that our world may actually reject us, not merely for the name of Jesus, but for our performance. I put in that quote from J.C. Ryle, it's not the weaknesses and inconsistencies of Christians that the world hates, but their grace. Maybe, yes, and no. I will go with first the no. I don't believe that's always true. By the way, notice, aside number three, notice that we, have, we confess sins every week, don't we, in the church service. Why do we do that? Because we need to. Now, do we need to confess our sins so that we are saved new every week? No, I don't believe that Jesus wants us to come to the altar and get saved again. I don't believe. I remember as a kid, I was talking this out with different people from different church traditions. And at that time, I thought that certain profane words were moral confines, moral regressions, moral trespasses. And I said, what if you're in a car accident and you say something and then you're gone? Are you outside of the love of Christ because of your performance, because you haven't confessed and asked for forgiveness for that sin? And everybody walked me off that cliff, because they're like, okay, quit being a dramatic teenager. So here we are, theologically, we believe that if you are in Christ, you've been marked by the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have been saved from this world and into life. And that after we are justified, which means declared righteous. After we put our faith in Christ and we are declared righteous by God, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are wiped away. And by the way, if you listen to me and only hear one thing today, just know that in Christ, your past, your present, and your future is cleansed. You are clean, and you are adopted, and you are grafted into Christ's family. You are united into Christ's family, and you are forever with Christ. So then why do we have to confess every week? Have you ever had a friend? Have you ever had a relationship? 
relationships carry this analogy a little bit better than friends, because sometimes we annoy our friends and we just never resolve it and we just continue on as friends. But if you've ever been in a relationship, you can't go too long without dealing with it, can you? When you've offended your partner, when you've offended your spouse, when you've offended your other. Does that mean every time you offend them, you have to start the relationship over from ground one? All right, we're broken up and now we're starting again. No, but you confess to heal. You confess to renew. You confess to do maintenance inside that relationship so that you are healthy, so that you are loved, so that you can know you see them and you aren't wondering what they think because you've already worked it out. So every week we come into here and we confess our sins, both corporate and private, so that we can walk away again at least once a week, no, and be reminded that God loves you. He knows you. He saved you. He cleansed you. He, he, you can walk clean, as we talked about earlier. In the same way, I think we need to get a little bit thicker skin and recognize that the church also needs to participate and practice the act and art of confession. We need to remember, see, J.C. Ryle said, it's not the weaknesses and inconsistencies of Christians that the world hates. But I want to stop there and say, what about the weaknesses and inconsistencies that we have done? Should we acknowledge them, or should we sweep them under the rug? Should we own them, admit them, and confess them so that we can say, yes, things have been done wrong in the name of Jesus, and I can't go back and change that but I want to go forward and go rightly in the name of Jesus. See, that's still the act of confession. I know that sometimes we have people that will say, oh, for the name and cause of Christ, we have to sweep our sins under the rug. It doesn't take us to go back too long in the, over the past decade and a half to recognize that when institutional churches sweep their sins under the rugs, it does not serve Jesus or the church well, does it? We can take a look at large institutions and think, oh, yep, we knew they were bad. I remember when it was all the scandals in the Roman Catholic Church because we knew they were bad and we had a little bit of Protestant arrogance until we realized our institutions were bad too. The only way you get spared from being a, a, a global or national scandal is by being part of an orga organization small enough to not meet the headlines. Because whether it's a small missions agency that's only sent out 40 missionaries over the past 40 years, or the Southern Baptist Church, which has reaches all over the globe everywhere, every institution for a certain time has chosen to try to sweep scandals under the rug instead of acknowledging sin and confessing it. So I think sometimes in some instances, our critics and our persecutors have a leg to stand on when they look at the performance and behaviors and inconsistencies of the church. And when you do see that, we own it, we confess it, and we commit to moving on in a new direction. Even if it wasn't us, that's, again, the corporate confession, right? The corporate confession is that we are tied into this, so we take some ownership of it. If you want a book on that, uh, Bullies and Saints, Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. 
He's an Australian scholar who's working up at Wheaton College now. Bullies and Saints is a history, an honest look at good and evil of Christian history. If you look back at Christian history, there is a wonderful, rich, robust tale of how so much of the goodness of Western civilization owes its gratitude to the church. But all that seems to want to make the highlights and the headlines from our, from our opponents is the negatives. So there's a resource to go look at the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So there's the aside over. J.C. Ryle, he said... It's not the weaknesses and inconsistencies of Christians that the world hates, but their grace. When it is our inconsistencies, we own it, we confess it, we move on. Now, where is J.C. Ryle correct? It's not the weaknesses or inconsistencies the world hates, but it is their grace. Is this true today? Is it still true that the world doesn't inherently like Jesus because of who he is and his message? The world still does not know the Father, so that's still true. The world still does not recognize Jesus for who he is. They do not understand his words or his works. They like some of them. They like some of them a lot, but they don't understand who he was and why he came and what he came to accomplish. And therefore, the world, by extension, does not accept the presence of the church, even on our good days. Why? Because it's already rejected the Son and rejected the Father because it doesn't know them nor understand them. The world does not understand the Father. Let's break that down a little bit. Two polar opposites of it is that you have the world that says either there is no God or we have a custom designer God personalized to whatever it is that you need God to be in your day. I love, I love, love, love the world and work of AA, and honestly, the church has a lot to learn on how people grow, how people are discipled through AA, and we know that the history of AA is built upon a lot of foundational Christian teachings, but I know because they reach wider and they have a goal different, they just say, seek your what? Your higher power, and that's maybe helpful for people, and I'm so glad for their recovery, but I'd love to put a name on the actual true higher power that's able to, to do more than just help them out of alcohol, but save their life for eternity. And his name is Jesus. So either there's no God or there's a custom design God. Either way, the Father disappoints the world's view of who he is and should be. The world sets themselves up on the judge and jury seat, judging whether or not God has acted good enough, present enough, or righteously enough for their tastes or their perspective or their experience. The world still does not know Jesus and does not understand his works. They love Jesus as a teacher. They love Jesus as a moral leader, mostly, sort of, until some of his moral teachings infringe on what they want to hang on to or keep. But then, again, see back to the custom design God, you can jettison that which you don't like. But what they fail to understand is that he came to begin his kingdom. And they want to hang on to the old and the old world. The world loves a meritocracy. J.C. Ryle said it does, it rejects it because it doesn't like grace. What is grace? God's overwhelming blessing poured out to you because of the love of his son. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the adoption of a child who ha offers nothing to the family but just joins in. That is grace, and we want so much to earn our affection and earn our love and to merit the goodness 
In high school, I was, had a good friend. His name was Jeff. At one point, I had him trapped in a car from Gainesville back down to Venice, Florida. It wasn't by design. We just went up to visit his brother for a Gainesville, Florida game. And then on the way back, we had a three-hour car ride. And what do you do with a zealous 17-year-old Christian in a three-hour car ride? You talk about Jesus for three hours and you wear them down until they have some form of a... I remember the spot on I-75 outside Tampa, Florida, where Jeff prayed a prayer that I was taught to make people pray so that they might get saved. He got saved for two, three weeks. He was floating on cloud nine. And then I remember three weeks into his new life in Christ, he told me, oh, I, just want to earn, I just want to make sure that God knows he picked the right guy. I was like, whoa, whoa, I wanted to put on the brakes. But we were passing in between classes, and I didn't have three hours to trap him into like, no, we got to straighten out your theology on that one. You see, Jeff was a 4.0 student. Jeff was a future military officer. Jeff was a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of guy. Jeff was an overachiever on the football field. He was a little guy, but strong and fast and worked harder. He outworked everybody, and he was for darn sure going to make sure that God knew that he would outwork all the other Christians to merit his blessings. If that resonates with you, I have a, I have a word for you. That is not Jesus' good news to you. That is Jeff or you earning your favor because you're good enough, smart enough, and darn it, God likes you. Instead, no. Jesus sees you, and he sees you in your goodness, but also in your weakness. He sees you in your merits, but he sees the overwhelming demerits and failings and falters. But he loves you, and he knows you by name, and he calls you into his family, and he heals you, and he humbles you, and he asks you to serve the least instead of becoming the greatest. And that is the good news, and that is the grace that I think J.C. Ryle is correct. The world doesn't understand, nor does it want because it loves a meritocracy, it loves a ruthless justice, as long as it doesn't inflict on their personal mercy. And then therefore the world by extension does not accept the church, even on our good days. Hmm. We don't want to be on the back end of the equation, father, son, and Christian. We want to cling to any excuse to save ourselves. So if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you, Jesus tells us. If you belong to the world, the world will love you as its own, because you do not belong, but you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you. I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, slaves are not greater than their master. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. So don't get caught up too easily in just letting yourself off the hook with your Christian life. Just thinking that anybody who does anything mean to you, anybody who doesn't receive the gospel after first presentation, anybody who doesn't seem to like the, world, the Christian worldview in our political sphere, don't just be so quick to label yourself as persecuted. but hang and cling to the good news. The good news is this. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive and well. Jesus is alive and well and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom now and yet to come. 
I have more good news. Jesus sent his spirit. He told his people there that as you're persecuted, no, I will send an advocate. I will send the spirit. I will send the spirit of truth to testify on your behalf. And then you will bear a testimony of God. So, as we walk this life in this day, let us cling and build our whole orientation of our world. How do you relate to your neighbor? How do you relate to our community, to our state, to our country? You are a branch grafted into the vine. Apart from him, you can do nothing. In him, you can do things un un unthought of unimaginable, impossible for us to do on our own. Let us set our expectations on the fact that not everybody will receive us with open arms and glad that tidings that you are, you are here to liberate us. No, you're liberating them from their world that is secure, that is known, that is what they want. You're here to liberate them from a spirit of darkness that deceives them into thinking that they are their own gods and they are their own masters and that they are in control of their lives. And you are here to live a world that just exudes and, and, and pulses grace to everyone that you meet. Not moral perfection, because you don't have it, and neither do I. I definitely don't. We're not here to create a dominion and to dominate and to take the place over and make it operate by Jesus' rules, whether you believe or not. Nope, that's not our calling either. We are here to be sons and daughters who live lives of grace watching the good Lord grow where he grows, watching the vine travel where it travels, watching the fruit grow on the vine and bless those around it, seeking that we might too might bear fruit. So set our expectations of our place and our journey. If we face a world that rejects the Father, Son, expect that we too will be rejected. And if we are finding ourselves being actually rejected, just know you're probably on the right path. Amen? Lord, help us to walk with you today. Help us to walk with you this week. Help us to not be distracted by all the noise around us, by getting our eyes off of things that are good and right and true. Lord, help us to be persecuted for your name and not our behavior. Help us to be persecuted and rejected because grace is not easily understood in a world that values merits and achievements and performance. And Lord, help us to be content to let our performance be directing people to you and not to ourselves. We pray this and ask for your spirit to fill us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.